You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Hello, you're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm Corey, a.k.a. Bayou Benders, alongside Mason Dixon, and this is Habs Nightly, your hub for Habs content. Welcome back to Habs Nightly, folks. It is, uh, it's been a week, but you know what? We're back, so there can't be any complaints. Uh, today we have a special guest, Sebastian High is back, and uh, hopefully I'm active. I'm activated in, in this episode with Sebastian, but uh, fuck it. Mason, how are you? And then uh, Sebastian, how are you, bud? Um, I'm pretty good. I'm happy to have Sebastian back on. Um, you know, we we talk... I'm happy to have an input. I, yeah, <laughs> we, we talk every like I say we keep in touch, hey Sebastian, over Twitter and yeah, shoot some ideas off each other. So I really enjoy uh, having him on. We get to have more in depth conversations. You know, this isn't just for you guys. I just genuinely I like talking hockey with Sebastian, which is why we keep asking you to come on. But uh, how are you, buddy? I know you're out in Europe right now. Yeah, I'm great. Like right now I'm living the dream. I'm, I'm, I'm currently at a vacation rental in the Austrian Alps, uh, spending my day scouting, which is, uh, <laughs> pretty much my, my idea of a vacation. That's uh, so awesome. I'm having a blast. Uh, it's great. That is, this is your, what your second or third time going to Europe too. Well, I'm lucky enough because like half my family lives in Germany. So growing up, I, I've always had the privilege of being able to, to to visit on almost a yearly basis. Um, but 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 those those times were always mainly spent in Germany. And then now the last the last couple of visits, I've been branching out and and going to some neighboring countries. Uh, but last that's the way to do it. That's awesome. Oh my god, it's great. And and it's like you don't even have to cross any border control and like within the EU. Uh, and it's everything's just so close like it's 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 tremendous and uh yeah I'm, I'm having a blast uh today was a rainy day so I just stayed in uh and I I scattered like a, a bunch of players and uh no I'm, I'm having a blast this, this is this is this is my idea of a good time and I'm doing very very well as a result <laughs> that is I, awesome. I cannot blame you I my day was spent um at long-term care giving suppositories to people so i would have much rather <laughs> been sitting in uh sitting in the austrian alps scouting guys that's amazing um so let's uh let's kind of dive into what you've been doing before we really start talking habs and you know the big lottery news and stuff um since our last conversation you know you said there were some things in the mix i know we talked privately since then um you you're you've taken tremendous steps in your career the last I want to say year and a half you've really progressed but now you're really taking the charge here um you want to talk about Dauber or like go into all of it because it's crazy what you've been up to yeah it's 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 gone pretty quickly uh so since the last time that that I was on the pod uh I got a promotion to be the 
full-time, like, like full-on uh, head scout of the Dauber scouting team, which is, uh, it's, it's awesome. And I'm, I'm very, very uh, <laughs> happy to, to be here. <laughs> it, it's definitely a challenge, but uh, I, I've had a ton of ideas and, and I've also been able to, to uh, promote uh, Hattie Kalakesh, who is um, a close friend of mine and and one of the scouts, public scouts, I, I have the most respect for. Um, and and so now he is the the North American uh, head of scouting, and I'm I'm very very excited to to lead Dauber alongside him uh, because I didn't want to be doing this alone. Uh, gonna be honest, <laughs> because. I have a ton of ideas and sometimes uh, one of my, my weaknesses is I can have some very, very grand ideas and not always uh, be realistic with all of them. And Hattie's great at, I guess, keeping me in check a little bit. So we bounce ideas off of each other. I have grand ideas and he brings me back to reality. So we work well <laughs> as a team. Uh, I'm I'm the idea guy. He's the realism guy. And, and no, it's awesome. And and like the scouting team is just really great, and we're going to to continue to build it out uh, now in the summer and the off season. Uh, we we plan on 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 adding a few new roles as well as just adding some new some new scouts. Uh, like I want to add a a um um like directing a, a director of analytics or like data scientist uh, because no other public scouting network actually has. Like a like a full time like data scientist, I don't believe, and that would be something that I think that would would set Dauber apart, and I think it would also just be great to diversify our analyses that we take into account on our board because I always try to to keep track of the analytics I can that I, that I have access to, but having someone doing that exclusively would be tremendous to have, and would also save me a bit of time. And and that that'd be great, and and also just having like a social media manager and uh, uh, kind of of get it, getting Dauber's reach beyond just Twitter and the Dauber site, and 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 opening a YouTube channel, uh, maybe also going into TikTok with with certain snippets like scouting snippets, um, and nice. yeah, like like lots of ideas that I think could could be really fun. Uh, and, and at, once the draft is over, um, I'm going to sit down with the rest of the scouting team and with, and with Hattie, and we're just going to talk through some of these ideas that we have because, um, being, being the head scout now, I, I do want to actually do things a little bit differently and, and make it not my own, but, but, but make it our own as a, as a new collective at, at Dover Prospects. So it's very exciting and I'm, I'm very grateful to, um, Itu Siltanen, who is who is the the head scout before me, who had to step back uh, because uh, he is also a scout for a Swedish hockey league team. So he has other things on his plate that he needs to focus on. Uh, and I was I was very grateful for the the trust that he instilled in me to 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 give me the role uh, when he left. That is awesome, man! Congratulations. Thank you. I, I, I much much appreciate it. Yeah. No. I. I wanted, I didn't even want to like try to explain exactly what you were doing. I'm glad I just totally let you go ahead <laughs> because like the, you know, the depth in which that you're taking kind of control of Dauber is awesome. And, you know, clearly like you have some great ideas and I'm excited to see them uh, kind of, you know, Dauber transition into trying some of them, practicing new ideas. Um, that's really exciting. Um, and, 
you know, even just we're talking before you're sitting in Austria watching, like, this is clearly your passion. Eh? You know what I mean? Oh, like, I mean, I think if I'm spending my vacation in the Austrian Alps, uh, spending like eight hours plus a day scouting and doing podcasts about scouting, <laughs> uh, it, it, I think it's a bit telling of uh, passion, maybe borderline like too much, but but I, I love doing it and it, it brings me joy. And it's something that I, I, I really am trying to continue to refine. And another one of my off-season projects, not DABA related, is just to to get a bit more theoretical with scouting and 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 delving into my own scouting processes and trying to refine my my own scouting ability because um the, the more you do it the the more you realize uh, your own inefficiencies and and that's something <laughs> I want to keep working on uh because there's, there's always players where like I, I'll watch them the first time around have a very clear read on them uh watch them a second time around and it's completely different and then i go back to watch the first game to make sure it wasn't insane and then i see something completely different from the first time around and it's like well okay yeah uh um, this is far from a from a from something from something that, that i've perfected not that i think any scout is, is anywhere near perfect it's all about optimizing your odds uh but i i definitely want to want to put in some work uh later on this summer to 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 keep refining my own process no, absolutely. I think that that's any capacity, right? Like sure. as a podcaster, which I'm sure you understand. And even as a hockey player, as a scout, like you need to refine your, your craft. Um, And on that note, speaking of people refining their craft, I want to kind of jump into the draft talk here. Um, The Habs recently got fifth overall in the draft lottery. And I know we often bring you on here, Sebastian the Scout, but as Sebastian the Habs fan, were mm-hmm. you like, how tight was your ass clenched during that? Because <laughs> I was losing my mind <laughs> when I saw Arizona was picking sixth. I thought we had it. I genuinely thought we had Bedard. I had no confidence going in, but <laughs> for like 30 seconds, I thought we had him. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, weirdly, I, I was really sleep deprived. Uh, so oh. I was like not at all invested at, at the time. And I wasn't stressed whatsoever. I was just tired. <laughs> I, Let's do it. I, <laughs> I, I woke up at 6 a.m. European time uh, because I it was my travel day coming down from mm-hmm. northern Germany down to Austria. And I left at 6 a.m. I was on the road in trains for nine hours that day. And then I got here and I was dead tired and I had to stay up until 2 a.m. for the draft lottery. So by the time we got there, I was like, I'd, I'd almost fallen asleep five separate times. <laughs> and and I, I did like a live like Twitter space, which wasn't even about like, like communicating my thoughts. It was just about like an incentive to keep me awake and and like to not fall asleep halfway through. Uh, so yeah, I, I think the strongest reaction I had wasn't even close. It, it wasn't even at all like the Habs picking fifths. It was just pure, unadulterated like <laughs> frustration and and uh, <laughs> many other emotions that the Chicago Blackhawks were the were the team that won the lottery because um, I don't believe that organization deserves a first overall pick, uh, especially because this was the pick that they would have forfeited had they received more than a fine for enabling sexual abuse for a decade. Which. Uh, so- yeah. is baffling to me because like when the coyotes you, like, right like the, the coyotes and thank you but the one like, that the one that think? really the one that really got me and someone pointed this out so i don't want to take credit for it 
when the devil signed Kovalchuk to yeah. a contract that was not against regulations, they mm-hmm. made the regulations because of that. People forget it. Mm-hmm. But yep. when the contract was signed, it was, it was legal. legal and they lost a first round pick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Chicago Blackhawks, they, they covered up a fucking felony <laughs> yeah, for literally. crying out loud. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> And and they didn't even sacrifice a second round pick, right? Like let alone the no. first. I, think I would that, say, that if anything, they benefited for sure because like, it incentivized them to purge their locker room faster, which made them worse, and they got Bedard. Like I think, I think it's always going to be a le- legacy of of the Blackhawks landing Bedard, not Bedard himself, of course. Not 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 trying to connect him to any of this, like, uh, but right. But like, like what led up to getting this kid in the Hawk, league? It will always be connected to Kyle Beach, which, on the one hand, is incredibly frustrating, considering that the Blackhawks have already earned back the money that that they were fined uh, off of jersey sales and, t- and season ticket sales. They earned but, double that with once they won that lottery pick. I bet you they earned more than double the fine in Bernard oh jersey sales. For sure. Yep. Easily. Easily, right? And But on the other hand, I guess if, if I'm taking a more optimistic stance, uh, this could also just kind of keep that story in the limelight in the years to come mm-hmm. uh, of, of when people talk about Bernard landing in Chicago, that it is always brought up uh, that like it shouldn't have happened, which may actually prolong uh, how, long, how long the story stays uh i guess in 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 the news uh which i guess is a a slight silver lining to this all uh but that that to me was 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 a really frustrating thing and if i hadn't been 20 hours sleep deprived it it would have prevented me from falling asleep uh but i my body was just done um but that to me was the strong reaction i think the Habs picking fifth is what i expected going i mean i expected them to pick sixth so, so i guess it's an upgrade not that i think it's the biggest thing uh just because i do think there's a very very clear top five in this draft class but i don't think one of those players is actually going to go top five in that image cov but mm-hmm. uh yeah it, it's it, i'm very curious to see what the Habs do because i think that the player they pick uh un- unless one of will smith and, and leo carlson falls to five which is possible but not likely uh unless that happens i think that whoever the, the Habs pick will tell us a lot, lot more about what they value in players than we've seen from any previous draft pick or even like move as a whole. Because if they pick a player like David Reinbacher, it will be clear to me that they value safety in draft picks and they want a solid right shot defenseman who will be at least a second pairing guy. And maybe they have hope will be a top pairing guy, which I don't share, but I guess it's possible um but but if they pick a guy and and take a risk on a guy like Matt Bamichkov uh that to me would be indicative of an organization willing to put put their stick their neck out uh and and take a risk for pure skill and truly astronomical upside i think it's interesting you mentioned that because I've kind of had the same opinion, but like maybe even more majorly on how instrumental, like I think I'm further along than you are in that belief because a lot of people point to the Slavkovsky pick. And I would argue that that pick was less about the philosophy than this one will be. I think, yeah, like just 
say what you want about the Slav pick. I don't think looking back and, you know, hindsight is 2020. We don't know what goes on in NHL boardrooms until after the draft. And clearly there was no consensus among the NHL on who was going to go first overall. Yeah. So you can make the argument that they slap size, you know, the big horse comment (laughs) played a role. But later on in that very same draft, the Habs drafted Philip Mayshar and Lane Hudson, Lane Hudson, especially who I think obviously needs is not like you were saying it for how long he's going to be a great player, but in the eyes of NHL scouts, that was a risk, right? Sure. For sure. So this pick in particular, I, I totally agree with you. I think it'll be very indicative of, not just the Habs drafting, but how how their trading will go in the future, how they're going to make off-season decisions. Because I think we've seen a bit of both from Kenton Hughes. He's willing to take home run swings, but he's also cautious. And I think this will be a good, you know, kind of way of determining what way he's going to lean more often or not. Yeah, for sure. Um I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is just me thinking clearly uh, because it's not going to be smart. Um, But to me, if we did go Matt V. Mitchkov, it also would feel like as a fan, you have a timetable of when the organization expects to be at their height. And that would be this kid coming in and transitioning into uh, like a well machine. That's just waiting to add him to it. Um. Yeah. That's the best I can take. I mean, I, if we took him, I wouldn't be upset. But I just feel like as a fan, we all know that it's going to it's gonna take some time for us to get um, back to how we felt two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like if we made that, it would at least clarify, okay, we have about, what is it, three years on of a contract. We have like that amount of time that he's not going to be here maybe – like that should be our game plan is when he's ready, we have the team for him to come on and make sure. a, make our push. Like, I think, I think like, like everyone talks a lot about him being three years out, but a lot of players, like if you're not picking top two or top three, you're not getting a player who's playing the first year. And that's true. Right. And, and even if, if you are getting a player in the second year, which is, not always the case, even if you're picking like, rare, overall, I would, I would say even in today's game, right? Like, especially with like the difficult transition, uh, like it's, it's more tough now than ever before to, to, to start in the NHL as an 18 year old. But if for instance, the Hats were to pick a guy like Reinbacher or Dalibor Dvorsky and they come to the NHL, uh, like in a year's time. So not, not, not immediately, but a year after they get picked. How big of a difference do those players make in the first two years? Right? Like, hmm. are, are those players difference makers immediately? Like, like for instance, if, if the Habs had been without Caden Gooley this year, and this was his, what, D plus three season, right? If they'd been without him, is that the difference between, between like, making the playoffs and not? I, I don't think so. Good as he was the Habs still ended up with the fifth overall pick with him in the lineup. So I think it, I, I understand why, why fans want to see their prospects play quickly. Of course, I understand that, that desire, like 100%. But 
are those players going to be bottom six role players for the first two years of, the, of like of their NHL careers, or are they going to be those top six com- contributors immediately? I think Mitch Kopp is one of the, the few players that could be that immediately. He just won't be able to with his contract. But at the same time, you are going to be adding a 21-year-old Matt Mitchkov on a three-year entry-level contract. <laughs> when you're entering your prime as an organization, like, I'm, I'm sorry, but I think that is as good as the possibility as you could possibly wish for because he's going to be marinating in a top four hockey league in the world for three years in the second best organization in that league. And he's going to have to learn to play some defense because it's the KHL and you can't quite get away uh, playing, like getting pro minutes if KHL coaches don't trust you. And KHL coaches do not play young players unless they trust them. Uh, So he's going to have to adapt and complete and, and build a more complete game, which is the biggest qualm that every scout has with his play at this point. Hmm. And then when he's 21 years old and uh, this is the same player who as a D minus two scored 12 goals and 16 points in seven games at the U18 world championship. Uh, And everyone's now talking about, Oh, Dalibor Dvorsky was an incredible player at this U18s. And he was very good. Uh, he was not as good as Matt Mitchkov was at 16 years of age in the same tournament. Now, <laughs> bear in mind, Dvorsky is young for this draft class. Mitchkov is old, so let, let's say it's a one-year age difference. But like, it's it's. I, I just see very very different tiers of players here. And even if you're not getting Mitchkov immediately, you are adding a three a full three-year ELC as well. Because if a player signs at the age of 21, which Mitchkov will be when he comes over, it has to be a full three-year deal. So. Wow you are getting a potential superstar at a million dollars for three seasons when you are at your, hopefully entering your prime as a team. And you're going to have Caulfield as like what, a 24 year old Suzuki. We're going to, we're like, going to get like Kaprizov. If you, if you sign Mish, that, that's my thinking. And, you're and getting Kaprizov, Kaprizov without Kaprizov was on a one year contract when he came. Mishkov yeah. will be a three-year deal at under a million. So really? that to me is really, really, really enticing. So to me, everyone brings up the contract situation as like this massive problem and, and citing like, oh, there's going to be world conflict and and he's not going to come over because Putin's going to keep him in Russia, which to, in my mind, like in order for that, to, for that to happen, and I'm saying this as a history major, and I focus very, very specifically on 20th century history. In order for that to happen, we would have to return to Cold War tension, like levels of tension uh, worldwide. And I'm um, going to be honest, if that happens, I'm going to have bigger worries than if Matt Faye Mitchkov comes over at the age of <laughs> one or 24. Like, I'm sorry, but if there's a threat of nuclear warfare, uh, me, as someone obsessed with scouting, will not care as much about if a player comes over at a certain age. And I think if, if we're saying, oh, don't draft Mitchkov because we could have Cold War 2.0, maybe rethink your it's ridiculous. priorities. Like, <laughs> like, I'm also, I, I, like, yeah. That's a great fucking point, just like in terms of just logic, right? But also, I'm not understanding why this dialogue is such a big deal to begin with because we had three, everyone, five Russian players that were in Russia. That have signed ELCs in the last week. <laughs> and I don't get it. I don't understand it. Uh, also, yeah, we knew this going in. Like when he was, I'm nothing not changed in the last year. Yeah, and he was talked about a year, a year, like a year and a half ago to a mm-hmm. year ago, as 
him and Bedard. It was their yeah. draft class. They were spoken not as one and two, but in the same breath, yeah. people mm-hmm. were comparing them. And we already knew he was going to sign an extension, or I don't know if it had been signed, yeah. but like, like everyone the, the, knew. The three-year contract's been settled for the last like at least nine to 12 months. So I, it's, I think this is just a classic case of people and GMs talk like overthinking an issue and talking themselves into a problem. And it, I, I, I definitely it think it, it's correlated to a new rise in like, like a, a resurgence in Russophobia in North America of, 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 of just a, a real demonization of everything Russian um, rather than perhaps acknowledging that it is a, a cruel Russian regime, uh, but there are cruel regimes worldwide. Uh, and you could definitely make arguments about, about uh, cruel things that Canada and the U.S. have done as well, uh, not necessarily to the same degree. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's frustrating to me as well, just also as, a, as like a history major and a scout, just because it, it, it doesn't make sense to me the level that it's been I guess reported to of 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 oh this player is going to be forced to stay in Russia and, and and everything and yes we had we had one instance last last year where a CSKA goalie who is a Philadelphia Flyers prospect was barred from leaving the country and joining the Flyers and he was sent to the Siberia uh, for like four months which is horrifying uh, but that was also down to the specific the specific team it being uh, with with being CSKA. And SKA St. Petersburg is a completely different organization that has completely different political ties. So I, I don't see, I, I think a lot of this comes down to sweeping generalizations of, oh, Russia, Russia bad, Russian team bad, rather than perhaps thinking <laughs> of it a bit more logically of there's nuance in this. And and Matvey Michkov has publicly stated, publicly, that it is his dream to come to the NHL when his KHL contract expires. And he's, he's not saying he's that to he's going to, he's to the draft. He, he, he's going to the draft. He's stated it's his dream. Uh, and, and stating that, I mean, if, if, it was, if it were as dangerous to say that as people think it were, he never would have said it, right? And then furthermore, his father passing away, being, being turned into a conspiracy theory, which has almost become the default explanation for his father's <laughs> untimely death, being what he was killed by the Russian government <laughs> to keep his son in Russia, like, and then and now he's being allowed to go to the NHL draft after they killed his dad. I, I it, this this entire thing frustrates me to no end, and it goes way beyond scouting and the fact that I think Matvey Michkov is very very clearly better than any player apart from Bedard and, and Fantilli. It's just I think it goes down to a lot of like very, very like very political frustrations I have about this. Of there's so much inconsistency and there's so much rampant Russophobia that has been really normalized in North America at this point. That is that is honestly, in my view, the driving force of of the reason that that Matvey Mitchkov is 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 being doubted as a viable option at fifth overall. Of it not necessarily at, at least publicly, like in terms of the media. Uh, narrative uh it, it's being treated as like this massive massive deal that he's russian and we saw last year like miroshenko and yurov both won the first round the arizona coyotes really mm. really really reached on a defenseman at 34th overall Artyom duda who in my mind was not a, a top 100 talent and they picked him 34th overall and he's russian not only that he plays for cska which is the team that a week prior barred a player 
from going to the NHL and sent him to Siberia. Like, are we serious? Like, like why? How, how has anything changed in the past year? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, like, of course, the, the, the war in Ukraine has developed since then. But but how is there a bigger shift in the past year? I would argue the, the war was at more of it. Was, it was at its height at that yeah. point. Yeah. It's it, it's just it's endlessly frustrating to me, and and I could go on for ages about this. And I'd rather we perhaps refocus on on, pro, on the prospects themselves, where I think the focus should be, which is not on the politics and and the Russophobia, but but rather on the skill and the the talent that these players have. And Matvey Michkov is a very special player. Uh, he is a in my mind a as a draft eligible he is a more refined goal scorer than Cole Caulfield and he has better playmaking than Kirby Duck as a draft eligible did uh yes the def- the defensive game is bad uh but he's come so far this year the the development curve in his time with Sochi it, it was unbelievable like i've not seen something like that by any prospect like i was watching him play with St. Petersburg. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of doubts and I saw scouts that are really smart, rank him out to the top, the top 10. And I understood it because his, his tape with, with St. Petersburg was bad, like really, really bad. And then he goes to Sochi and on the, by far the worst team, the KHL, Matvey Michkov goes 20 points in 27 games while being fed minutes. And uh <laughs> Uh, over <laughs> while playing in one of the best leagues in the world, when he was on the ice for Sochi, over 50% of the expected goals on the ice came off of his shots. And he's a terrific playmaker. <laughs> like it, he, he's an absurd talent. And I think if the Habs pass on, on him at five uh, for whichever reason, unless there is something else uh, that is, that it, that that is a red flag that is not publicly available information as of yet and that i haven't heard uh through the grapevine uh of the scouting sphere oof i i i mean i'm not expecting the haps to pick mitchkov uh but i think i'm a bit pessimistic there but oof i think if they pass on an, on a player of that talent it's going to be the the philadelphia passing on cole caulfield thing all over again but perhaps amplified and um i wow. think that on the prospect of of being able to run a power play unit with uh left shot Mitchkov and right shot Caulfield on either side and Mitchkov is an elite level playmaker and he can also feed Caulfield oh boy like that that is that is something that I think you you really need to think long and hard about on passing and in my mind the far far greater risk isn't in drafting Mitchkov and seeing if he comes over because he will it's passing on Mitchkov and having to live with that uh, as an organization moving forward. And uh, I think it would be rather poetic if uh, if the Habs were to pass on him and then were to lose a playoff series to the team that drafts him, because that to me is entirely possible because uh, Matt Van Mitchkov is a level of player who can put the team on his back and win a playoff series. And I don't care if he's small. Uh, <laughs> Elite level players are elite level players and playoff hockey is definitely a different beast of regular season hockey, but there is no reason to believe that Matt Mishkov won't be the best playoff performer available at fifth overall. No, I think it's, I think it's pretty, it's weirdly unanimous that 
especially the Habs fan base, I'll kind of agree that Mishkov is, I think, I, you know, you get your Grant McKegs, but I think they're a dying breed among Habs fans. And I, I, I hate signaling out Grant all the time, because, but he's just because he's the most vocal. Um, yeah. Look, I think the fan base is weirdly united. You know what I mean? We're yeah. this fan base is divided on most issues. Like, but every with Twitter poll I've seen on like who would you pick, and it's like two thousand votes, and it's eighty eight percent Mitchkov, and there were four options. Like, yeah. yeah, and and I can say this as as someone who's <laughs> watched his fair share of draft eligible players. Um, the only player that will be available at five that I could rationalize picking over Mitchkov, um, and even then I wouldn't do it, but I could rationalize it, is Zach Benson. And that that that's it. That's the end of the list. Like, to me, at number five, you are sprinting to the podium to pick Mitchkov. And if, if all else. It, like, yeah. And and I think I think Zach Benson would be would be the one player where I wouldn't be frustrated if the Habs picked him, apart from Mitchkov. I think Zach Benson is a... Eh, I mean, he easily would have been my top ranked eligible in 2022. Um, he is the smartest player in the draft class. Um, he is a puppet master on the ice. I think that's that's the best way of, of, of describing him. He his off puck movement is absolutely elite, and and everything that happens on the ice happens kind of based off of his actions and and the small details in his game, whether that be defensively or offensively. He's elite both ways. Uh, he's a terrific playmaker and yeah, like his skating, like his, his, his forward stride is slightly subpar, which isn't ideal for a small player, but he's tremendously agile and he's really great at redirecting momentum through turns. So once he picks up speed, he doesn't really lose it because he just keeps going and his motor is just doesn't stop. So once he's going, he's going for the entire shift. So I, I don't see the big issue that, that perhaps the explosiveness in two steps isn't quite there yet. And Lower body strength is something that that every player improves on after being drafted, and it's going to improve this for Benson as well. So uh, Benson, to me, I think projects as a future first liner who will maybe not be like a 100-point guy, but maybe a 75-point guy, but every single analytics chart will be like 99, 99, 99, 99, going all the way down. Uh, he'll be a factor on both, on both special teams units, like Basically, what I'm saying is Zach Benson is is a borderline franchise talent. Um, big difference between gener- generational and franchise there, uh, but oof, he's great. And and while he doesn't have the same level of, I guess, <laughs> uh, like <laughs> supernaturally elite skill as Matt Benichkov does, uh, he's going to be a a a top. I think he has the ceiling to be a top 10 NHL player and um, no guarantee that happening, but I think there is that, that possibility. Uh, and I think if you get that fifth overall in the draft, you really can't complain. See, I, I love that you're talking about Benson because I've had this belief for a while and Corey can testify. I've been banging the drum for Benson since the start of the season. And That's I've awesome. always just had this sort of, innate kind of belief that somehow the Habs were going to end up with Benson. I don't know why. He'd be a great fit. Like in terms of system, in terms of what the Habs value 
Benson has it all. Like, like the Habs always say, oh yeah, we, we love players with character. We love players with compete, with intelligence. <laughs> That's Benson. Like that, that is Plus, literally, that, that is Zach Benson. And, and he's, and he's undersized, which is just, yeah. if you go back in time, that's characteristically Montreal Canadian. I know for some reason, Habs fans are still obsessed with size, but seem to forget that almost all our great players were undersized going back to the rocket yeah. and the pocket rocket. Like mm-hmm. we've had small players for the entirety of our existence and it hasn't hurt us. We are the most storied winningest franchise of all time. But when you talk about, you know, Mave Mishkov falling to five, um, I think it's interesting. It's, it's sort of less prospect based, more organizational, but as it is pertaining to scouting, I, I want to get your opinion on this. I had this thought the other day, um, Columbus falling to third, I think presents the Habs with a very interesting opportunity because as a lot of us are aware, Yarmo Kekalainen is one of the strangest funny brain GMs in the entire league when it comes to scouting. Yeah. And I think when you partner that with the fact that San Jose is fourth, and is it Weir that's the GM? I'm blanking on his name right now. Yeah, it's Greer. It's Greer. Yeah. He is also stated, like, you know, we don't, he's kind of an enigma. We don't know what he's going to do. He's a little bit of a wild card. We've heard some, there's been some weird reports, you know, him talking about making a splash and, you know, it's kind of, it seems to me like San Jose is going to, going to be a little unpredictable with their pick and you have then above them, the most unpredictable guy at the draft. Yeah. I think it's actually poses a really good opportunity for Montreal. I think Mishkov Benson or Carlson or even like this might sound crazy especially given the late rise even Will Smith I think we have a shot at any of those guys simply because of the draft order but Darden Fantilli are going one and two yeah but three to six I think is just I don't really know if I could tell you the order it's gonna be wild like I like the way I see it is that in all likelihood uh, Leo Carlson and and Will Smith are going three and four in some order. Uh, which order I don't quite know. I I think I'd say Carlson three and Smith four based off of Columbus already having Ken Ken Johnson uh, and perhaps not needing a stylistically slightly similar uh, guy in Will Smith. But um, again, as you said, they're both wild card organizations, and I I could see San Jose taking the risk and picking Matt Bamichkov, which would make it very easy for the Habs because the way I see it is it'll be wide open for Montreal if if one through four are Bedard, Pantilli, Carlson, and Smith. At that point, they are going to like the Habs are going to have a ton of options and they're going to have to make a tough decision uh, internally, and it, which I don't think should be a tough decision. Uh, but if one of Carlson and Smith doesn't go at three and four, uh, I'd be very, very, very surprised if the Habs didn't pick the player between the two that fell into their laps because uh, Leo Carlson, I think, would be a terrific fit in Montreal. Like you, like the Habs, like, like <laughs> you would get a power forward playmaking centerman uh, who you just staple next to Cole Caulfield for the next 15 years and are happy with uh, because that would be stylistically almost a perfect fit. 
because Carlson brings a high-end IQ, uh, great playmaking ability, great handling, uh, just overall very intelligent and 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 very good. His defensive game isn't as ref- I don't think it's as refined as others think it may be, but I think it could get there. And if you if you can turn him into that like elite two-way center. To, to to play with Cole Caulfield and whoever else in the wing, Slavkowski, like have that line going and and you're happy. And then you have uh, Nick Suzuki at 2C and and you're totally chilling. And your center core is looking <laughs> brilliant at that point. Uh, or, or or even Kirby Doc. Or or, or or just have Kirby Doc and Nick Suzuki on a line and I don't really care who plays center then. Um, but, or, or they add Will Smith who in my mind is a little bit riskier and to me, isn't a slam dunk centerman. I think there's a, there's definitely a chance he turns out best as an NHL winger. However, uh, you are getting a hyper-skilled player uh, who stylistically has resemblances to Logan Cooley, isn't as good of a skater, but is a better shooter uh, and definitely a bigger goal scoring threat. Uh, and, and you're just getting that hyper skill. So think somewhere between Trevor Zegris and, and Logan Cooley, like you're getting a great player there. Uh, I have him ranked a little bit lower, but I, that's mainly just down to positional uncertainty. And and I have a few question marks about how much he relies on on spacing uh, in terms of his production versus junior. This is but this is actually something I wanted to ask you about. Um, the Will Smith rise mm-hmm. has been one of the biggest talking points in hockey recently, and kind of it's been kind of unexpected for me personally, because I think Will Smith was always like, it seems people almost just didn't realize he was putting up an amazing year from the get go. Yeah. Like statistically. And I, I haven't followed as closely the last, like, you know, the last like month or so due to school and stuff. So maybe I've missed something, but it seems to me like this categoric rise to third overall. Like I, I knew mm-hmm. Smith would be talked about top five, but third overall is crazy yeah. to me. And and then a follow up to that, just to pose it to you, you know, I remember when Cole Caulfield was, you know, you know, I think going through the motions of the U.S. National Development Program, and a big argument was, you know, oh, he's a product of you know, success of other teammates. This is a great team. Of course, these guys are going to have great results. Mm-hmm. Well, I look at this U.S. team and, you know, guys like Perot who are putting up in monster seasons Bonkers. more. Yeah. Like, why is this, Ryan Leonard, why is this not a discussion for Will Smith too? It's just kind of odd to me. Um, Will Smith is the offensive driver on his line. Uh, he's, he's the most creative player. He's the main puck carrier. Um, he, he's the creator as a whole on the line. So he's definitely the, the, like, in my mind, the safest bet of that line to be the highest end NHL player. Now I have Oliver Moore ranked two slots above him at the moment, uh, because I'm, I think that Moore is a slam dunk centerman. I think he's a far, far superior defensive player to Will Smith. And I think that his playmaking and dynamism are being heavily undervalued just based off the fact that he's been playing on the second line this entire season. But um, yeah, Will Smith, I find it interesting because in my evaluation, nothing's changed with Will Smith in the last, in the last like month or two, like the U18s 
it was Will Smith. Like, like he was doing what he's doing. Uh, same thing with 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 Perot and Leonard and Moore and the entire NTDP team. Like, they were playing like the NTDP. I think the big thing was that a lot of people hadn't been watching the NTDP this season and hadn't realized just how dominant of a team it was. Like, in terms of like record, this is the the best NTDP team of all time. Um, now, I, I don't think they have they don't they don't have the depth. That previous teams have had, uh, especially on defense, like Aaron Maneshin, um, is really the the one defenseman that I'd be very excited to draft out of that team. But I mean, Trey Augustine is a tremendous goaltender, and and their forward depth is quite impressive, especially once they added they added Cole Eiserman and um, oh, um, what a player, James Higgins. Like, like yeah, like, like they 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 added some some excellent players there. But uh, yeah, like, like I, I can understand why he's being valued highly because the same people who loved Logan Cooley last year, which is totally understandable. Um, I, I had him ranked fourth, I think, which if I were to redo that, I'd probably have him third. But uh, yeah, like, like it's totally understandable because Will Smith is electrifying. He is really intelligent offensively. He is super creative. He... He he's a tremendous handler. He's a great playmaker. Uh, he can he can score goals as well. Like his upside is that of a thirty five goal ninety five point guy. Like there is like really terrific upside there. Now I think there's more risk with him than with other players in this range in terms of of perhaps not panning out to 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 reaching that highest end upside that they have. But uh, there's still a good chance that he ends up at around like six on my board. Like my top five are pretty much entrenched, uh, but 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 I have them at eighth right now, but but six to eight is is basically like roll the dice and and I'm pretty fine with any order there between Oliver Moore, Dmitry Semeshev and uh, and Will Smith. But he's, he's great. Uh, as, for, as for the rest of the team and being products of each other, I do find it interesting that it's not... Re- it's not like the biggest talking point in terms of like which player is a product of the others. But I honestly think that the biggest thing, especially with that top line is in the past three or four years in all of junior hockey, I have not seen a, a line that has had anywhere near the level of, of innate chemistry as Will Smith, Ryan Leonard and Gabe Rowe have. It, it is, it is so instinctual. Like, like they, always know where 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 the other two players are on the ice without even having to scan uh they know each other's habits inside and out they can fully trust each other with basically every facet of the game because all three players are are okay smith and perot are primarily playmakers and leonard is primarily a goal scorer but all three players are also very very capable at doing their less strong i guess offensive thing and uh, they're all three are hyper creative and they take risks offensively and they get shelled defensively. Like their expected goals against numbers are ugly, but they score more than they let in. And they, they play utterly chaotic hockey in terms of like overall results. But in the offensive zone, it is it's almost like a like a ballet, like like they 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 always know where the others are, and it's beautiful to watch. And I think that all three players are being elevated by playing with each other. So I don't really think it's a thing of one player is a product of the two others. I think that all three are, in a sense, products of playing in that situation, in that perfect little microcosm of of 
like again, perfect chemistry. So it's beautiful to watch. And, and I'm so excited to see them progress because all three are going to Boston college next year. So we're going to see that line stick together, hopefully. And, and that, that to me is an extremely enticing prospect is to see. Um, and before the U 18s, there was even the possibility of like the Habs <laughs> uh, picking Will Smith at five uh, when Florida was not in the playoffs yet, uh, picking Ryan Leonard at like 15 and then picking Gabe Perot at like 34. Now the Habs don't have that, that, that 14th overall pick anymore. And uh, both Gabe Perot and Ryan Leonard are likely top 15 selections now. So that, that, that isn't likely, but the idea of keeping that line together to me was so enticing because they are so much more than they're already impressive. Some of their parts, uh, because again, they just work tremendously well together. And while yes, like, like I, I have a pretty clear, like distinct order between the three. I think Will Smith is, is the best prospect. I think Ryan Leonard is quite clearly the second best prospect on that line. And that Gabe Perot is the third, uh, which also reflects in terms of like their roles on the line. Like, Gabe Perot is a tertiary piece. Uh, Ryan Leonard is a secondary piece, and Will Smith is the primary piece on that line. Like Gabe Perot is a hyper, hyper, hyper intelligent player. Like in terms of hockey IQ, he's top five in the draft class, uh, which I love. I love, and I, I think it should be telling that that if I have doubts about an undersized, hyper intelligent, skilled winger. Um, that, that, that there might be a little bit something to it because that's the mobile player that I like usually bang the table for. And with Perot, I'm going to do another round of viewings. Uh, and by viewings, I mean, like, I'm going to watch another four games of his in a day because I, I still haven't gotten a full read on him despite watching a ton of game tape on him. Uh, he's just been a bit of a tough one to pin down in terms of projection, uh, he's an elite junior junior player. Like in terms of junior competition, he might be the best player on that line in terms of like innately knowing how to exploit a junior level defenses. He does it so so well, but it also makes his projection a bit more difficult because because he does it so well. Innately, he's exploiting things that aren't going to be available the next level at the next level. So it's just questions of can he do what he's doing now once the competition increases? So I think uh, we'll, we'll definitely see next year in the NCAA. Uh, I think it'll be very telling of Gabe Perot uh, and, and his, his overall projection, how he does not in terms of point totals, but in terms of overall play. And uh, he's a fascinating case study. And I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to see how he turns out, especially if a team picks him top 10, because uh, it's it's a novel concept to me of, of NHL scouts being significantly higher on the undersized, intelligent winger who isn't a great skater than the public is. Like that, it's usually the opposite. It's almost always the opposite. But in this case, it's not. And I find that fascinating. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's it's a really interesting NTDP team this year, and uh, yeah, it's a ton of fun. But uh, yeah, Will Smith is awesome. Ryan Leonard is awesome. Gabe Perot is an awesome junior player who I really, really desperately want to be an awesome NHLer because man, he's smart. Like <laughs> constantly right right place at the right time, and uh, I I really want him to be a thing. Yeah, I, I like what you've like the way you explain Will Smith too and saying that you don't kind of confirming what I've seen. Like, I don't think that much has changed. Um, I'm I'm happy to hear that explanation, though. It makes sense to me. Like there are players, especially like Gabe Perot, who 
in junior know how to exploit defenses, but maybe it doesn't translate well to the NHL. Um, but I want to just quickly leap back to what you said about Will Smith and, you know, this insane potential. I, I like to have it confirmed by you because it makes me feel like I'm smart. And in saying that, it's a thought that I have had. I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion. I think Will Smith is one of those players that if he hits, he hits like a fucking home run ball and he goes straight out of the stadium. But I, I can also see, you know, this is, and I'm not, this is less about his potential, more about his draft stock. A, a guy rising so high as to be even maybe drafted third in the NHL. I think he could be that player this year outside of Mishkov, who I think we all expect to be possibly dropping. I think it, it would not surprise me if I saw Will Smith randomly drop in this year and you go, why is that guy still on the board? It just seems, I, I don't know why I have this belief. It's the, just the high risk, high reward kind of thing. Like there have been a couple of players that we've seen in recent years that have dropped such as Cole Caulfield and you go, why, why is this happening? And just based on, you know, we talked about Leo Carlson, Benson, Mishkov, um, there's a ton of good players in this draft, even Andrew Cristal, who I don't think we've um, really spoken too much about in the public eye lately. Um, and I, I could see Will Smith, you know, kind of dropping randomly. I don't know if you agree with that statement, but. I definitely think it's, it's possible that he drops to five. It's more of a thing of, I think if, if, if Will Smith is on the board when the Habs pick, uh, I'd be like gobsmacked if they passed on him uh, because on the one hand uh, he is a hyper-skilled NTDP player who is in terms of consensus, the top NTDP player and players that, that lead the NTDP always go high because it's also a thing of, it's a very, very strong team. And in order to, at some point, a team's going to have to break the ice and pick the first NTDP player. And I'd be very, very surprised if Smith weren't the first player from that team to be selected. So I, I think that there's kind of a limitation on how far he could drop just based off the fact that like teams would want to select Leonard or want to select Moore or want to select Perot. But that, that I think for a lot of teams will be difficult to rationalize while passing on Will Smith. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, <laughs> Kent Hughes has known Will Smith since he was a child. Like, like, like there, there are also that, that connection and then that, that familiarity that the Habs clearly value. Uh, and I, I think that if Smith is available at five, that the Habs are sprinting to the podium to select him, unless Leo Carlson falls as well. If both of those guys fall, if like Columbus and San Jose do some wacky things, uh, I think at that point, it's going to be a very fortunate long conversation to have the draft table uh, between those two players. For the Habs, but uh, I'd be surprised if if both of them fell. Um, but I think if Smith is, is available, like specifically because it's the Habs, I'd be surprised if he fell past five. That's that's you know not something I considered. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I I don't this Leo Carlson. It, I don't. It, it kind of it's my one like point of pain because I feel like if the Habs pass on Mishkov, it will almost be because of Carlson because he just seems like a Hab. He just seems like a guy the Habs would take. He's great. Like 
to, to me, there's, there's a very, very clear top five in this draft class, right? Like Bedard is the best player. Uh, then I have a second tier of, of Fantilli and then Mitchkov. It could also be two separate tiers, but Mitchkov to me is also a tier above than Benson and Carlson. But there, there is to me that, that clear top five. So I think if the Habs land one of those five players, for me, I'd be elated. Like if they land Benson, if they land Carlson, if they land Mitchkov, uh, you, you like, yes, I would, I would like Mitchkov the most out of that bunch, but you really can't go wrong. And which, whatever you're picking there, you're, you're picking a player with significant top line upside. Uh, right. So I think in the end, if you end up with a, this isn't a stylistic com- comparison, more just in terms of like value, I guess, uh, if you land a Kopitar instead of a a Caulfield on steroids, would you complain? Uh, I don't think so, right? Like, like you're, you'll be happy with your Leo Carlson, who's going to be your 1C of the future, who uh, has 25 goal, 85 point upside. Like, he's a terrific playmaker, uh, who has the upside to be a really great defensive piece, uh, who is going to be featured on both of your special teams units who's going to be driving really, really impressive results, both in transition and in terms of offense. Uh, Overall, he's he's going, like in in my mind, Leo Carlson projects as a really high-end NHL piece. And uh, I've I've watched, he hasn't played center the entire season, uh, but he played this game at center uh, the last few games uh, in like the pre-tournament world championship games. And I watched him at center and it's like, well, yeah, he's a center. <laughs> he, he looks like a center, but they're playing on the, on the wing. Uh, but he he looks really natural down the middle, uh, which correlates to my D-1 viewings I had of him. So uh, I think if, if the Habs land one of, one of Benson, Mitchkov, and Carlson, like, you really can't complain. And then Will Smith is, for me, a tier below. But that's not indicative of less upside. It's just more risk to me. I think I think Will Smith is riskier than Carlson or Benson are in terms of projection, because I think Carlson or Benson, at the very, very least, you're getting an elite second liner. And with Will Smith, I think there's a world where he is a solid second line winger rather than an elite 1C. So there is there is some degree of risk there in my mind, uh, but that that is the reason that I'd have Smith lower. So it's not a thing of, oh, it will be a bunt rather than a swing on upside. It's just it's a riskier swing on upside that I think is, again, I think the upside is relatively comparable uh, with Smith as it is with Benson and Carlson, but the added degree of safety and floor and defensive games for both those players being far ahead of Will Smith's uh, to me are separating factors. Okay. Yeah. Good. That's, I, I, I kind of like, I think that goes to show too why it was so important that the Habs didn't fall from five. I think we mm-hmm. got very fortunate for sure um, in saying that, you know, we've talked about, you know, we've got a great idea of who you value at the top of this draft. Um, now I, I'll pose the question to you. Who do you think the Habs will take? How do you think the order will go? If I had to bet, I'd say Bedard, Fantilli, Carlson Smith. And maybe I'm being pessimistic with this um but david reinbacher makes a ton of sense for the habs and it's not a pick i'd love uh i i have reinbacher ranked 17th overall i think he's a great prospect like me ranking a player 17th overall in a very strong draft class is indicative of me liking that player quite a bit 
but he reminds me a ton, like like a ton of a right shot Caden Gooley. And that is an amazing piece to add if you have the opportunity. I think I think we can all agree that that would be massively entertaining. Uh, Ryan Bacher plays with a bit less a bit less violence uh, than, than than Gooley, but perhaps is a bit more controlled. And he's a better passer in the breakout than Gooley is. Uh, I think he has more upside as a as a power play like distributor. He's not a playmaker, but he's a distributor. Um, it's more just a thing of if you're picking your right shot, Caden Gooley, but you're passing on your again like cocktail on steroids. Is that really a pick that you want to be making? And to me, the answer would be no. Uh, but he fits the positional need. Uh, he is a very safe bet to, at the very least, be a second pairing guy, and all around, he's again he's putting up over half a point or around half a point a game in a pro league in Switzerland, which is not development league whatsoever. I don't think it's like the strongest pro league, which I think some people are kind of painting it to be, uh, but but it attracts a lot of like former NHL talent. It's more just a thing of like there's a big drop off between those players and then like the average players in the league. Something, sorry yeah. to interject here. Um, no, no worries. Just in listening to former NHL players, you know, this is through Chicklets and other, you know, former NHL's podcasts and stuff. A lot of guys I've heard, Nathan Gerby is the big one I'm thinking of, um, listening to him talk about his experience in Switzerland, saying that it the game in Switzerland does not, is totally different than the game in north america and i'd like to get your kind of viewpoint on that because i assume it must be difficult to judge a player's projection from that standpoint you know he was talking about how it was it was like he couldn't touch he was an mhl player and he he couldn't get the puck for the first three games because he didn't understand how they played like it's that much different so what like how much validity is there to that this is a former you know, Nathan Gerby was no superstar, but he was no plug either. He's right? a good player. Yeah. So what like is there kind of some credence to that thought that it is maybe difficult to transition from that league? I, I definitely think it's a different brand of hockey. Um, but I do think that Reinbacher plays a very, very like NHL projectable style. Uh, but as a whole, the Swiss Hockey League is a little bit more strategic, a little bit more of a chess match uh, than NHL hockey is. Uh, but that also means that it's a lot less pacey. And, and, and the entire like, like players have a lot more time to execute, uh, which means that they can make more calculated decisions. But I think that's mainly a result of there being more time. And I mean, I, I haven't watched uh, Gerby's uh, Swiss League tape, but I could I could envision that he was perhaps trying to play at, at an NHL pace and then would just end <laughs> up chasing the puck around the ice um, where where again, it's, it's a larger ice surface. And because all the players typically in, in the Swiss league slow the game down, uh, that if you're going hundred miles an hour when every other player is slowing it down, you're the one that's kind of not complying to the style and that could disadvantage you. So I think that would be my interpretation of that. Um, but I, I haven't watched that much Swiss league hockey. Uh, so I, I'd have to do more of a deep dive to give you a more, I guess, uh, a, a more refined answer. But um, I, I think Reinbacher is, is a, a smart defender. He plays aggressively and well. Uh, he was the best player on the Austrian U-20 team at the World Junior Championship. Uh, he played really, really good hockey at, at the World Juniors. Um, but 
I think as a whole, his offensive game is 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 limited. Uh, he's not a great handler. He has a really locked top top hand. He has a he, he's a bit of an awkward um, I guess handling style. He has his he has his uh, his his top hand elbow like above his shoulder, uh, which really limits his range of motion. Uh, which means he's basically just stick handling like diagonally in front of him, uh, back and forth, which limits how deceptive he is. And while he's a really good skater, there's only so much you can do if 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 you're not like using your reach to keep the puck away from opponents to weave between them and i think the handling limitation is a big thing that that limits him in transition and makes him project mainly as a as a breakout passer rather than like some a defender who carries the puck up the ice and becomes like that fourth forward off the rush uh and in the offensive zone like there have been instances where he's circled around the offensive zone in the swiss league with the puck in possession but it's literally just him but not handling the puck he's just holding the puck and just because there's so much ice surface, he just goes in circles because he can. And, and then he just makes a pass and they retain possession, but nothing came of it uh, because the defenders held the box in the slot and he's just going around. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, looks cool, but didn't really do too much. And it's not something that he could do in the NHL. So it's not really a type of play that I look at as something that's projectable in terms of an offensive style. Um, and offensively, I think he caps out as like a, he has a pretty hard, hard shot, say like a 12 goal, 32 point guy on the backhand who, who maybe who could be your, your second power play quarterback. Uh, it's more just, I have a question of like, why would you pick that player fifth overall while passing on potential first liners, right? Like, are you valuing your number three or four right shot defenseman who plays really good defensively. Like, like, don't get me wrong. He's a great defensive player. And I wouldn't be ranking him 17th overall if he weren't, because I, I'm quite hesitant of ranking defenders inside the first round. If they don't project as like dynamic power play quarterbacks. And despite that, I have Reinbacher at 17th. So the defensive game is very, very good. I don't think it's Norris good, but I think it's really good. Uh, but again, it's a question of who you're passing on, not, an indictment of the player himself. Like, I think me having guys like like Dvorsky and Reinbacher ranked 17th and 18th overall isn't a thing of like, oh, I hate these players. They're they're not good NHL prospects, whatever. It's literally just like, I think these players cap out as a 2C or as a number three defenseman if they get really good development, and which is amazing to have. But the draft is always relative. Like it's, it's not a thing of, oh, this is a third overall caliber player. This is a 20th overall caliber player. It's, it's constantly relative to the rest of the class. Like, what are you passing on to select this? And I think if you're passing on a Matt Bay Mitchkov to select a, a, David, a David Reinbacher, you're going to end up with a really good NHL defenseman. Like, I think my NHL comparable would, would be like an Adam Larson, like really good player, like genuinely really good player who's playing like Larson is having a great playoffs. Like he's, he's doing great. I love Adam Larson, but would you pick Larson over Cole Caulfield? Or I Taylor Hall. Or Taylor, like, like, <laughs> pick there, right. But like, there's, there, there's so, there's so many guys. Right. And, and, and it's not just Mishkov, it's Benson and Oliver Moore and Dmitry Simashev and Will Smith. Like, Simashev to me is the top defenseman in the draft class. Again, he's a he's Russian, uh, but he is so toolsy. He is a better skater. Like like <laughs> Simashev to me is what the public or is what many people hype up Reinbacher to be. Like Dmitry Simashev is 
an even better skater than Reinbacher. Dmitry Simashev is even better defensively than Reinbacher. Dmitry Simashev is a dynamic offensive defenseman when he wants to be at times in flashes, flashes, ridiculous handling and playmaking in small flashes. Like there's no guarantee of that projectability, but it's there. With Reinbacher, it's circle around the offensive zone two times because you have space to skate into. And that to me is a lot less projectable than a high-end solo rush weaving through KHL defenses and sending a puck to the slot like Simashev has done a, a few times. And I, I see Simashev as a guy who like, yeah, he's raw. Like he, he's going to need some time, but you let him marinate, you have you trust your development stuff, and you, there's a possibility of getting a number one defenseman out of that pick. I don't see that that possibility with Brian Bacher. And and I think I think there's a, like Simashev to me is a tier above the rest of the defense from the class. And I have Axel Sandin Pelika also ranked uh, above um David Reinbacher, who in my mind is a if you love Lane Hudson, um Axel Sandin Pelika is a slightly more physical and uh perhaps slightly, slightly less dynamic right shot version of that. Like like he's a great player. Like you, you land a right shot version of Lane Hudson and you're happy. So uh, I, I think, I, I think that would be also a great pick. I mean, like five would be a little bit high, but I could understand that a lot more in terms of rationalizing it than Reinbacher, because you're landing a player who flashes, like he, he's the best goal scorer among defensemen in this draft class. He is one of the top playmakers among defensemen in this draft class. He is the most dynamic defenseman in this draft class, uh, and the list goes on. Uh, defensively, uh, it's a work in progress, but uh, you live with with that if if the offense is at the level that it is. So, um, yeah, I think I think Reinbacher is is my my fearful prediction, I guess, uh, for the Habs pick. But uh, there are other defensemen that I would pick ahead of him. You see, I yeah, like I've I think too. It scares me that Craig Button, who I I actually I know he gets a lot of heat. I actually love Craig Button, um, but I you know not always the greatest draft list that I agree with. However, I find that Button tends to speak quite often, um, heavily like his opinions seem to align often with the Habs. Um, I remember he was banging the drum for Cole Caulfield that year. Um, <laughs> yeah. And just so it does frighten me to see him, you know, rank uh, Ryan Backer as highly as he does. But listening, yes, um, listening to you speak like, you know, not just this um, session, but, you know, other times we've spoken on the podcast. Um, and I, I've kind of have this thought. It's kind of eaten at me for a while. Um, when you talk about players, you often talk about their potential and their ceiling and how they can be dynamic. Yeah. Um, and yes, you, you do bring up, you know, there's risks such as why you're ranking Will Smith lower, but I'm, I'm going to just pose the question to you. Do you think there, there's a possibility that public rankings such as your own and NHL rankings have such a disparity? It seems quite often um, is due to the fact that, you know, private scouts, NHL scouts, they're, you know, guys that they recommend and bang the drum for, those same players determine their paycheck and their livelihood. So 
if I'm an NHL scout and I have to choose between Dalibert Dvorsky, who is probably going to play in the NHL and a player like Andrew Kristal, who is smaller, oh, yeah. and maybe I have oh, yeah. concerns, right? For sure. Like, you uh, know, I wonder, do you think that is why we see, because I, I find it hard to believe that, not to say that you don't know your shit, right? Like you are rising up, but I find it hard to believe that guys who have spent 20 years doing scouting don't see at least some of the things you do. Do you know what I'm saying? Why, why do you think that disparity exists? I definitely think that, that that you hit one of the really important points there uh, in terms of, of like, (laughs) look, I'm not, I'm basically not being paid for what I'm doing. I, I am I'm doing this for the love of it. And it also means that I don't really have tangible risks here. Like, yes, I'm I'm sticking my neck out in terms of reputation. So like like ranking Lane Hudson 11th overall last year could have backfired pretty badly in terms of like if he just, <laughs> I guess, uh, didn't work out in the NCAA and just immediately crashed. Like, yeah, people would be like, why would you rank that guy 11th overall? And that could be a thing of like discrediting, discrediting my ability. But, yeah, but then it, instead it built you, I would argue. Yeah, it was a risk I took, right? <laughs> like it was, it was a conscious risk, that was like, risk I took. Like the next highest rank, per, 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 like, next high, highest like rank I saw for Hudson publicly was 16th. So 11th was a pretty big upgrade over that. But despite that, is that that, that risk isn't comparable at all in terms of, of scale to NHL scouts that uh, yeah, like, like, like there is also definitely a thing of, of, of you need to get your paycheck and, and you want to get players that are guarantees at the same time, I would make the argument that, that NHL scouting staff and overall NHL, like, like hockey op staff, uh, there isn't much turnover and it's an old boys club. Uh, and when scouts get fired one place, they get hired another pretty quickly. So I guess that'd be the counter argument there. Uh, though I, I do definitely believe that that, that uh, the safety in terms of paycheck plays a role, 100%. Uh, I, I, I don't quite know how big of a role that is in, in the grand scheme of things, just because of typically when, uh, when a scout is in the NHL and has been in the NHL for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, they like <laughs> one bad pick isn't going to lose them their job like at all. And, and if they lose the job, they're going to get a new job pretty damn quickly because uh, there aren't that many NHL scouting positions that open up uh, for non-previous NHL scouts. There's just a lot of that recycling within the industry for better or for worse. Um, at the same time, I, I also think that, that um, the age of video scouting plays a big role in terms of, of, of these different projections. Like I think publicly there's less of a bias in terms of um, where players come from, like in the, at the NHL draft, uh, North American players and NTDP players are heavily overvalued over uh, European players. Like that, that is one, I guess, market inefficiency that isn't talked nearly enough about compared to like the undersized inefficiency uh, that, that, is rather well known at this point. Um, and I think that that that's another thing of like video scouting, making every single league accessible to us. Like I have access to videotape from 
literally every player I want to watch. Like I watched, I watched a few games of a guy called Francesco Del Alce today who plays prep school hockey and the camera is like a fisheye lens. Like, and I have access to that, right? So, so with video scouting, you have access to all these things and it's just been so fully embraced in term, in the public sphere. Uh, I think in the NHL is a bit of a slower process. Obviously for the COVID season, the first one, uh, they had to rely on it. Uh, like they didn't have a choice. It was the only option. And I'm certain that that has shifted things a bit more in, in, in favor of video scouting now in the NHL. But there definitely is still a reliance on in-person viewings. So for instance, the U18s are heavily, heavily, heavily valued by NHL scouts because every single NHL scout is at the U18s and is watching mm-hmm. those, game, those games live. And scouts will typically uh, favor the games that they watch live over games they watch on video, uh, which I have a differing opinion on. I, my analyses in my experience are always a lot stronger on video when I can pause, go in slow motion, uh, rewind, and, and, and really see things in detail. Like things like stride mechanics, you're watching that real time on the ice, like in person, Ooh, it can be tough. It can be tough to nail down. Like at the high end skating coaches obviously can do it without issue, but it, 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 it helps a lot to be able to go in, in like super slow-mo and like really delve into every single detail of the player's stride on videotape. Uh, there are still obviously inefficiencies with, with video scouting. Like you're not able to see how a player reacts to a bad shit on the bench. And perhaps those more like character things, I think are a lot easier to see in person than on video. And that's, what I typically use my live viewings for. Like when I go to OHL games, when I'm scouting them, I don't usually like focus too, too much on what's going on on the ice. I'm looking at the bench because that's the one thing I don't have access to on video. And that's one thing I think is important that I should have access to and that I should consider in my analyses. Uh, so I think that also plays a role in terms of like the medium of scouting of perhaps changing how, how, how people or how scouts uh, value players. Um, I also think it's a thing of, uh, there's a lot of talk about like the old NHL versus the new NHL, right? Like the Boston Bruins in 2012 won the cup with a hard nosed, hard hitting team that would not make the playoffs in today's NHL based off of their style. And I think that there's still a lot of scouts that, um, for the first 20, 30 years of their careers were building for that type of team. It is difficult to then adjust your entire scouting philosophy to the development of a new NHL that is a lot more focused on speed and skill and dynamic ability. And I think that that calibration for that shift hasn't entirely happened for a lot of the old guard, which isn't, in my mind, an indictment on their abilities as scouts. It's just that the game has evolved and it is a lot more difficult to evolve with the game if you have been scouting for a specific different style of hockey. So for would you years, right? Would like you almost say that you're you're not you're not seeing maybe an issue with the talent of about the the way exactly if sure. they can evaluate. They're just evaluating for the wrong things. I, I, I not even like evaluating for the wrong things. I think it's just a thing of a calibrating like the evaluation process for today's NHL and. And I think it's a thing of like a lot, like look, look at public scouts today. Like the public scouts that have been around for like the longest have been around since like 2010 to maybe 2007, if you really stretch it for some public scouts. And so basically everyone in public scouting 
has grown up and 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 has always been evaluating for a game that has been far far more based on speed and skill than on hard nosed physicality and and all those other things that 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 defined the NHL between the 1990s and and the early 2010s. So I think that we have an advantage of not needing to adjust our entire I guess scouting philosophy to the shifting NHL and. That is a hurdle that this generation of public scouts uh, will have to face in the future because the NHL is constantly evolving. And I think that scouts need to constantly be reevaluating their own evaluation process and what they value to mirror the NHL. And that is a challenge that every generation of scouts will have to face because the hockey shifts pretty quickly. And, and I think that that's going to continue to happen. So in 20 years time, you may hear of a thing of like, oh yeah, like those conservative old scouts who only care about dynamism and, and, and all of those things, like they're really neglecting a lot about what the NHL is now. Right. So I think it's, 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 it's a generation gap really in terms of, of uh, not in terms of like, of like even like stubbornness of not wanting to adapt. I, I just think it's incredibly difficult if 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 you've been doing something for 30 years. Like like imagine like if you study to do something as a career and you've been doing it for 30 years and suddenly the entire structure of, of your career drastically shifts from, from evaluating one specific type of thing to a completely different thing that consists of so many various different components that in the past, you've never even had to consider, and and now you have to learn that. It's a lot tougher to learn that if if you've been doing it for thirty years and are now fifty five, sixty years old and still love scouting and have a passion for it. But it can be tough to kind of like unlearn what you spent your entire life learning. And I think it's just I think that plays a big role as well, where it's not a thing of like oh good scout bad scout. It's literally just a thing of. I like, of course, I believe that, that that public scouting as a whole has some efficiencies over more traditional scouting. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be what I, I, I wouldn't have the type of list that I like ranking that I have now if I didn't believe that. Of course, I I do, but it's not that I think that oh, oh like traditional scouts are dumb or whatever. I I just think it's about valuing different things, and that I've had the advantage of not needing to adapt to that yet. I think that my time to adapt to that will come in the future and I'll have to ha face that hurdle with an open mind. Also looking back to now of, of, of needing to constantly adapt. And, and I, I think that that's a very, very big challenge as a scout, because again, you spend years crafting what you think is like the most optimized version of scouting. And then if that is just turned on its head in like a five or seven year span, where completely different things are valued like that's a really big shift no i i think that i love that answer um <laughs> thank you for it. that was very articulate i i think you make a good point it like you can even see that in everyday life right like look at for sure imagine being a computer engineer that was trained in the 90s and then trying to keep oh, up now right yeah it's similar to what you're discussing and of course I think yeah that's a really, really, really strong, good point to make. Um, before, like, I actually, yeah, I guess before we even like wrap things up here, I don't know how long we've been going for. I feel like time just seems to flow when we, <laughs> we start talking <laughs> here. Um, Corey, um, before like we move on to just finally wrapping up with some Hab stuff, did you have any 
sort of draft uh, questions you wanted to get off your chest. Hey, guys, before we move any further, we do have an ad read by our friends over at DraftKings. Uh, Light the lamp during the hockey playoffs with DraftKings Sportsbook. Right now, new customers can make a $5 bet and score $150 in bonus bets instantly. Hopefully, you guys put some money on Florida tonight against the Leafs, because why not? Um, I still think there's a chance. Uh, But anyway, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and sign up with the code THPN. New customers can make a $5 hockey playoff bet and score $150 in bonus bets instantly. That's code THPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Massachusetts, call 800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Kansas, call 1-800-522-4700. On behalf of a Boot Hill Casino and Resort, 21 and older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for offer details. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. We also have an ad read by our friends over at Raycon. So anyway, let's face it with coffee starting at $5. Yes, even without any customizations. Our bank accounts somehow always depleting. We are officially entering a dupe session. Most products do the same thing, but are priced differently solely based on the brand name. So a good duplicate or dupe is crucial for getting the highest quality at the best price. One dupe you definitely shouldn't sleep on is Raycon's wireless earbuds. Raycon is premium audio at the perfect price point, so you can listen to what you want, when you want, without breaking the bank. Raycon's mission is to prove that you shouldn't have to pay an arm and a leg for quality sound and essential smart tech listening features. You can get a pair and a spare and still pay less than you would with some of those other more big name tech brands out there. Raycon knows that it's the economy. Every purchase needs to be perfect. The offer, buy now, pay later options are huge. And right now, you can pay as low as $18 at checkout. They have an easy and free return guarantee. They offer two years of product protection insurance for just a few bucks. And they offer free domestic shipping and flat fee international shipping. They have over 50,000 five-star reviews. And uh, my favorite feature of mine is always the time. Eight hours of playtime. You, if you work and you, you're allowed to listen or can utilize that type of thing in your, in your job, throwing them on at lunchtime boosts it to about another, a 10-hour day. Some people like myself work that maybe even longer. These headphones, uh, the quality of them last for an entire workday for most of us. Um, and that's a big deal for me. Uh, the gel tips, uh, I love them specifically because it doesn't allow my ears to get as irritated as like old uh, iPhone or iPod headphones used to be. Um, it doesn't leave that soreness in your ear. But go to buyraycon.com slash THPN today to get 15% off your Raycon order that's a buyraycon.com slash THPN to score 15% off buyraycon.com slash THPN. 
No, normally my stuff gets answered. Uh, so it allows me to just in, intake it all. And then, uh, yeah, that's normally how it goes for me. Um, I'm excited for uh, Matt Vay Mitchkov. It was someone I wanted to talk about last episode. Well, yeah. last episode with Sebastian, um, my computer robbed me of that. But <laughs> at the same time, the, the last one, he really got me excited about Zach Benson. This one, um, unbeknowingly, we focused on him again uh, and allowed me to like really uh, bring in Matt Vay's attention back in my mind from Zach Benson and uh, excited either way. I do like um, what you said about how traditional scouting and video is. I feel like um, it is they're they're set in their ways and, you know, they you know, both look at the same things, but they're seeing it more of how do they react in real time and you can like really delve and see the inner workings of how this player is more or less constructed. And I feel like the the new era way gives us a better result uh, just by looking at him as a whole instead of the individual um, in movement. I don't know. Like, I guess, and in, in not being able to stop the movement. Maybe it sounds silly, but... I, I personally find, like, live viewings tough. I, I know it's, it's different for every for every scout as well. Like, like I know awesome public scouts that are my age or even younger than me uh, who prefer live viewings to video viewings. Like, like they they are more able to, 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 to spot, I guess, the more holistic type of game a player has in live viewings than on videotape, right? So I, I do think it's also a thing of, of you have to kind of tailor uh, tailor your scouting process to your own abilities. And right. for me, video scouting is what is is where I just, I get by far the most out of it. Like I've, I have done like little experiments where I go to a game, I scout a player, I take that notes, and then three days later when that game is uploaded to Instat, I will rewatch the same game, but on video and take down notes and uh, compare and contrast. And uh, consistently, like, yes, I'll spot some of the same things. Like, of course, of course, like I'm still scouting the same player. I'm still the same scout. I still value the same things, but I will see far, far, far more. I was going to say, like, you're, you're able to delve further into something that could have, you might not have even seen that originally the first time. Like you can now look at five different components of the game instead of looking at this one great uh you know uh movement movement of their game instead you can say well i completely missed how that developed yeah now i I think that that. i think it's interesting too like video for me i'm i'm on the same board like when i especially i don't know if we talked about this i was a pretty high level soccer player uh growing up when i watched game tape and even if it was like, usually it was my own, right? You're watching yeah. to improve yourself, but I would, I would watch the whole game and there were, you know, times I was on the bench, you know, taking a break and even just things I saw from my own teammates. Like I, I literally sat, I played in this game. I watched it. Yeah. Watching the video and seeing, Oh, you know, so-and-so made this pass and Oh, they could have like, you see things it's it sounds odd especially hockey which has to be processed way faster than soccer oh god yeah 
odd to kind of, you know, I hear people say the argument of, oh, well, especially like we see this in um, suspension reviews all the time. People say, well, you're breaking it down. I think even I've used this excuse. You're breaking it down to hundredths of a second when in reality it was a blink of an eye. And I think that argument can be made. Yes. Okay. But at the same time, you have to consider that, you know, me, Mason Dixon and you, Sebastian High are not elite level hockey players. So we need that slowed down time (laughs) to be able to process what they, what those players should be able to process. Right. I think, yeah, yeah, like it's a very, very interesting dynamic there. And it's also another thing of like, um, if I go to a hockey game uh, and just to scout it, I need to be very, 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 very lucky to get a seat with as good or better review than I can get from a camera angle. Uh, yeah, teams that like have their camera set like weirdly low to the ice. Uh, those are always games that I just, I will literally just, I will click on the game. If the camera angle is weirdly low, I'm clicking off immediately because it will skew my analyses because it, when, when, when the camera is too low, is too close to the ice or too low um, players, like, like it, it's so tough to judge speed and, and, and overall just like tactics and movement and strategy when you don't have that, I guess, more of a bird's eye view on it. Um, and, and often when I go to like Ottawa 67's games, I, I, I usually sit with, with my, my good buddy, Nolan Bernier, who, who usually sits like kind of off, like, like, like to the side of like an, the net, like further up, like you can get a decent bird's eye view, but from an angle. And from there, I find it a bit tougher to scout as well. So um, there's, there's many different factors there. But again, I, I do think goes to, it also goes down to, indiv- to individuals. Like, like certain scouts will be able to, to like process and see the big picture things in live viewings a lot better. Like when they see things developing, they can like, they they can just process it more effectively than if it's on video if they are there and they can, it's it's more tangible right and and I think that that holds merit as well like I I think that 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 scouts should lean into whichever medium they find most effective for their own style of scouting and I I don't think it's necessarily a thing of like one is better than the other I think both are quite complementary and and both can be used in tandem very very effectively. Uh, but mainly it's a thing of like, okay, on the one hand, yes, like the video scouting is also just way more efficient. Like I could, like I hammered in nine viewings today of players. Uh, if you were to go to games with players, you could like scout maybe two players in a game, like very effectively if they're on different lines or different pairings and then go to make like two games. So you have like four, like four players, but then you're also traveling and you have all these other other things that are also quite taxing. So I I, I love the, the comfort of video scouting. I can download games. I don't even need a Wi-Fi connection to scout. And and I have all, all, all these different things that, that, that facilitate the scouting process for me and make it more efficient for me. And I find my analyses to be more like more in depth as well. So uh, for me, it's the best thing. But I, I do know other scouts that are more effective with uh, live viewings which is especially like doable if you're a regional scout, right? Like it's tough if, if, if like me, you're trying to watch everyone because uh, <laughs> uh, I definitely don't have the budget to travel around the world and scout players uh, just 
because I want to, uh, I need video scouting to do that. Um, I could, I can watch the players in Ottawa, but that's about it. I can go to Gatineau too, but that, that, that's the limit of my, of my, my scope in terms of live viewings. But, uh, in terms of regional scouts, uh, if you're scouting like the OHL, like, yeah, you, you, you can like drive between Southern Ontario cities. And then whenever teams are, are, are in town, you, you go scout them. Right. So, I think at that point it's actually quite doable, like as well, to to still be a a a scout who relies on live viewings today. And I know of a lot of scouts that that do that and are are very 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 good scouts, and their analyses are very very strong. So I'm not trying to, to discredit live scouting at all. Uh, I I just think that especially for me, uh, it's it's the best medium, and I think it's the most efficient way of doing it. No, totally like. Obviously, there are different viewpoints on everything, and I, I'm kind of of the same opinion as you are, but I think, you know, it is all, always going to be a personal preference, especially anything scouting is always an opinion and a personal preference. Of course. It's, it's so, so subjective. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, moving away from the general scout, you know, lottery pick ranking yeah. stuff, um, to wrap things up here, because we are a Habs podcast and you are a Habs fan mm-hmm. I and you know last night I just saw something that just tasted so sweet it was so nice to see a Lane Hudson to Sean Farrell overtime winner oh, yeah. and oh my god was that ever amazing coupled with that Lane Hudson shootout like just extravaganza I, <laughs> I I'm sure you were smiling ear to ear when you saw that you know we've yeah. had a year of development with our prospect pool since about a year since we picked Yaroslavkovsky. And I just want to know what, like in the grand picture of things, because I think one thing that Habs fans, we, we speak about how we're very divided. One thing we seem to all agree is that we have a pretty decent prospect pool. Some people think we have the best pool in the league. Other people are a little more pessimistic. But the real question I'm getting to and what I want to ask you is from the, you know, the crop of Sean Farrell, Hudson, Kidney, Beck, et cetera, how many do you think impact players? And, and I guess maybe actually I'll change that. What players do you think after your viewing have you maybe really warmed up to and thought like this guy could make an impact? Like, are, is there anyone that's kind of taken a, a significant leap other than Hudson and Farrell, who I think we're all yeah. pretty high on? Um, well, I don't think the Habs have the best prospect pool in the league. I do think they have the deepest. I think the Habs are pretty much set uh, in terms of every position that they have uh, that is like bottom four defensemen, uh, bottom nine forwards, like backup goalie all of that is basically set with a prospect pool like it is there's like really impressive depth there's so many players that i think can realistically become decent nhlers what the habs lack are those game breakers and i think that also goes down to to why i would be so averse to the habs picking players that project as at most second line or second pairing guys uh with the overall pick because that is what the habs already have in spades like they have a ton of it and um yeah like like i think it's a, it's a tremendously deep pool uh as to 
which players have taken big leaps in the past year. Uh, Riley Kidney's a really big one. Uh, I'm glad I, you said that because I was I, never high on Kidney. I was, I was not known. I thought of him. Yeah. Like I was, I was never high on Kidney. Um, he, he was before the season, he was always very much a perimeter based player, but playmaker, uh, really smart, really skilled, good passer. But I was so concerned because <laughs> If you are allergic to the slot in the QM JHL of all leagues, like, oh boy, that's that's a tough transition to then learn to become middle driven in pro hockey after not doing it in junior. So what I think happened is that the Habs sat sat Riley Kidney down with Adam Nicholas and Adam Nicholas and and Marie Philippe Poulain um really drilled in the importance of of being middle driven and kind of taking that Nick Suzuki development approach where in Suzuki's final OHL season, the Habs sent him back with the message of like, we know you want to be the best possible junior player, but what you need to do for your own good is to play a projectable pro hockey game in this season. And then that made Suzuki dominate the OHL playoffs that year because he was playing a pro style of hockey. And then the next year he came, comes into the NHL as a fourth liner and is the one C by the end of the season in the playoffs. So I think that was a, a, a very, very key component in Suzuki's development. And I think a similar thing happened with Kidney, where they really drilled in the importance of playing a more pro-style game. And then they gave him a roadmap to become that more middle-driven player. Because, like, again, Kidney always had the skill. He always had the playmaking and, and the speed and the pace. But... He was so perimeter based, and then this season, uh, he's he's been doggedly attacking the slot every single game, and uh, not only has that made him a far more projectable NHL prospect, but he became a dominant QMJHL player because of it. Because uh, the Q isn't exactly known for its uh, slot driven players, and uh, well, Kidney did it, and and I caught two Gatineau games this year. And uh, Kidney was uh, terrific in both. And uh, I was seeing the same thing, my live viewings that I was seeing on video with Kidney, where he is, is again, he he's layering all these skills that he's built up in his entire lifetime on this foundational new habit of attacking slot, which has just entirely transformed the way he plays and has totally transformed his projection. So where in the past I would have said, I fear that he tops out as the top line AHLer. Now I say there is non-negligible, like borderline second line upside there, which uh, I didn't think I'd be saying about Riley Kidney at any point. So he's come a tremendously long way and he has a ton of skill. Uh, I think he needs at least a year in Laval. Like he's not a player that's going to be playing many NHL games this this upcoming season, but uh he's great like he's he's really turned a corner for me and i think that the the additions to the habs development staff are already paying dividends and uh and i don't think riley kidney would be uh where he is today if it weren't for for the hires of uh of poulain or or nicholas so i think that's been tremendous and uh yeah anyone else that's come a really long way oh adam angstrom oh yeah Big time Adam Engstrom, uh, the Swedish defender, yeah, Swedish defenseman. Uh, he's not a guy that was super on my radar a lot, like as a draft eligible. I watched like two games of him, 
as a draft eligible, but whenever I watched him, he's on the same team as Cali Adelius. And as I was like, oh, well, I mean, Angstrom's fine and all, but he disappears and shifts. Adelius is awesome. And I still think Adelius is awesome, though he he didn't progress great this year. Um, uh, Angstrom was the opposite. He he made the perfect transfer to Rugla, which is the best development team in the entire SHL. And uh, yeah, uh, it's working magic. Uh, and and I, I think that that system is just perfect for him. They they trust youth. They trust skill. Uh, they gave him the freedom to use his skill consistently. Uh, he's super mobile. He's a tremendous skater. He's one of the best skaters in the Habs system. Um, he's really improved his gap control and transition defense, which was a weakness last year. Uh, he His defensive game as a whole is fine. Uh, nothing to write home about, I'd say. Uh, but I think if it progresses at the same rate as it as it as it has in the past year, he could become a solid enough def- defender in the NHL and not get like 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 hammered in his own zone. Uh, but what's really come a long way has been the offense and the transition game. Like the skating's always been there, but the this elite transition ability is something that I hadn't seen before uh, this season. And uh, in the offensive zone, he's he's been he's been really impressive, and he's playing a really big role on their back end uh, in the playoffs, even. And uh, with with um, oh, what's his name? It's not it's uh, William Wallander. I always confuse him with Tom Wallander. Uh, very similar names, but William Wallander, who's a who's a Detroit prospect, was basically regular's like main young defenseman this season. Uh, but he's going to, he came to the AHL. So uh Angstrom's going to have a bigger role next season. And I'm hopeful that he's going to com- continue his very strong development curve because uh, he was looking like a, a potential second pairing guy to me this year, like really, really dynamic, really skilled, um, basically doing what Norlander was doing often with perhaps a bit less flair, but doing it against playoff SHL competition rather than regular season, uh, Osvenskin competition, which is a really big gap in in terms of quality, and he's doing it at a younger age too. So I think I think Engstrom and Kidney are the two players that have rocketed up my my Habs organizational prospect rankings. Um, in terms of others, I think I think Vincent's Roar is, is probably the last guy I'll add to that list. Um, uh, I watched him about twenty times live as a draft year, and again twenty times live this year, and uh, yeah, massive shift. As, as a draft year, I think I ranked him like 88th overall on my board uh, for the last draft, which is making me look a bit dumb now. Uh, but I bet against his youth because he was the youngest draft eligible. Like he's he's born like one or two days um, before the cutoff. So uh, very close to being a 2023 eligible. And despite his point tally not exactly popping off this year, he's he's become far more complete, like really dangerous. And I have heard that yeah. he is absolutely a competitor too oh my god yeah he's violent he's so violent he's undersized but he plays with tenacity and violence and and so physically effective uh, he's super fun like I, I love watching him live he's he's also a general on the ice uh i'll be sitting up like pretty high up in the stands like uh to get like that that bird's eye view and you can hear him in the, de- in the defensive zone commanding his teammates to take up positions and to cover specific uh, uh opponents and like he's very very vocal uh he's a great leader he's 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 gonna be Ottawa's captain next season i'd be shocked if he weren't uh he he he, he has that comp the, the competitive spirit 
he never gives up on pucks. Uh, all those things I just love to see as just like not even as a scout, but just as a fan of the game of hockey. Like you just have to appreciate and love that. And he's been doing that great, but he's also refined a lot of his offensive game. He uh, his playmaking game has come a really long way. Like like last year, his main offensive tool was his ability to get like really good elevation of pucks from in tight. So he'd he'd shoot from like really close to the crease and he'd be able to roof the puck from there. And that's basically where most of the production came from that. And like, just intensely, like, like, like again, doggedly pursuing pucks and like, and applying for checking pressure. But this year he's become a really effective uh, power play playmaker as well from, from below the goal line and, and sending cross cross crease passes. And he's also a shooting threat from that position because it is in tight and he can get that elevation as a right shot from the goalie's right side. So uh yeah Vinny Rohrer I I think is is awesome I don't really see top six upside with him I think there's there there's some limitations in terms of of dynamism and and that that like really high-end skill but he's a good handler he's improved his playmaking he's he has a decent enough shot uh he's quite solid defensively and he just he puts in that shift that I think will get will get him to the NHL I think it's the effort level that will get him the NHL role and the question is how far is still his skill can bring him up, can elevate him up in a lineup. So I think he caps out as a as a three C. I because he's been playing a lot center and and he's been pretty good at it. So I think that there's a possibility of him being a center at the NHL level. I don't think it's a. I think he'd be a great winger as well though. So he has that that positional flexibility, which is awesome. But I think if he really, really, really pans out, you get a three C on a middling team. So perhaps not 3C on a contender, but 3C on a on a middling team or just a really good 4C on a contender. So uh, I think he's come a really long way. Uh, I wasn't nearly as excited about him as a prospect at this point last year. So uh, yeah, my, my, three, my three gems in terms of development this season in, in the Habs system would quite clearly be Kidney, Angstrom, and Roar. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have really 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 been high on kidney uh ever since that trade to Gatineau so I love yeah. hearing you talk about him um yeah I and going back to even earlier what you said I think you know the Habs that is exactly true we lack game-breaking talent but I almost see it as a log jam kind of issue the Habs are going to have to yeah. decide what prospects they want to keep because sure. the, a lot of these guys you know we're talking about now are legitimate assets because and, and you when only have 50 contract spots. They, they, they won't be able to sign them all, let alone yeah. put them all in the NHL lineup. So, and when you're, there is a log when, you're, for sure. when you're drafting in the second, third, fourth, fifth round, et cetera, and a lot of these guys the Habs have are those late picks, any sort of games is a value. You've hit with that pick. Yeah. So, to, we need to extract that value in some way. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon decide to do, um, yeah. who they decide to pick. But I would be remiss to um, end it <clears throat> without asking you to just talk briefly on me and Corey's personal favorite darling sweetheart, um, Josh Waugh. Now, I don't, I don't know if we even touched on this last episode. Uh, I don't think But – we on this show have talked, spoke a lot about, and I'm sad we're not going to see it now. Just his chemistry with Connor Bedard. Um, yeah, 
is intelligence. Now, I know that a lot of people were kind of upset that he didn't have a significant offensive increase in production. His points per game are actually like identical. He had 119 and 66 last season and was like 99 and 55 this year. I think it's like yeah. 1.8 just rough math there. It's, it's pretty identical in terms of point per game. Mm -hmm. Um, will absolutely be in the AHL next year. What, um, what are you seeing with this player? Like lay it, lay it to a straight. Cause I can't lie. He is my, my golden boy. He can do no wrong. I love him, but what do you kind of like, what do you expect to see from him in the AHL next year? Um, not, not to break your heart on it, but I, <laughs> one thing I was about, I was, I was close to saying in the last segment, um, when when you brought up the thing of the logjam, is that is the prospect of perhaps flipping players who are awesome. And don't get me wrong, Joshua Hua is awesome, and he's found money. He projects to me as a middle six player, uh, and to get that in, from a fifth round draft pick is tremendous. So it's a hit, one hundred percent. And 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 what I'm saying, I'm going to break your heart. It's it's limited. It's not it's not not like a full scale destruction. Um, <laughs> what I'm saying here is, I think that the Habs have a lot of players that project quite similarly to Joshua Hua in terms of of where they'd fit in a lineup as being those middle six players. And there are only six spots in the middle six, and I think that 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 Hua's value is tremendously high right now, especially after his his is consecutive strong world junior performances and the fact that he can complement players as skilled as Connor Bedard. I'd be curious to at least test the waters to see what you could get for him in a trade uh, of if you could land a top 25 pick in this draft class with Joshua Hua, I would be very, very enticed to do that. Uh, there, there are a few players that I think could be available in that range that uh, have top line upside, which I think that Hua lacks. So it's less of a thing of not valuing what he has. It's more just a thing of, again, there is a logjam and some players are going to have to move. And I guess the question is, do you want to flip a guy who projects as a third or fourth liner for like a third round draft pick or a fourth round draft pick? Or do you want to flip a guy who projects as a second or third liner like Joshua Hua and who has significant trade value uh, for something a lot more significant? And not saying that the Habs need to trade him at all. Like they, they are under no pressure to, to do so. Uh, but at the very least, I, I would like to see them test the waters and see what they could possibly get for him. At the same time, I think that if the Habs keep him, which they will, like I'd be, I'd be surprised if they moved him. Uh, and I think if they, if they keep him, he is going to excel in the AHL next season. I think uh, his game is tailor-made for it. He has come so far since his draft year and his game, it's not a thing of he's improved his game since the draft year. He has transformed his game since the draft year. Uh, he has added layers of defensive ability and tenacity and all around hockey sense and, and anticipation that just wasn't there uh beforehand like it, it really wasn't uh even going back to like d minus one tape it wasn't there and uh i think his development curves has been excellent and in the ahl next season he's going to be a really valuable top six player and i think he's going to get some nhl reps in the next year i think it might just be a little trial run for like three to ten games 
uh, or it could be extended. But I, I think he'll get a shot of some sort just to see what the Habs have in him. And I think that if I had to bet on it, uh, I think that Joshua Hua ends up as a really valuable Swiss Army knife on a third line, which is a very, very, very valuable piece. Don't get me wrong. Like that, that is a piece that every single team in the league covets. Uh, and that's also why I think that he has significant trade value because you have to give up in order to get. And uh, I don't think that he has the level of dynamic ability um, and overall upside to project as a slam as like a, a a a high value top line guy that is on your top line on championship teams unless unless he plays that type of like hymen or bunting role to complement high-end players i think that is the one caveat where he could be that tertiary player possibly in a top line uh i'm not fully convinced of that being likely just yet but I think it is within the realm of possibility. So I think that is the one way where he could end up as a top line guy. And I think Zach Hyman is like the 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 stratospheric end of, of Joshua Hua's upside, uh, where it is technically possible, but like every single thing would have to go right for that to happen. Um, but I can totally understand why he's your darling. He he is hyper intelligent in the offensive zone. His sense of positioning is one of the best in the Habs system. Uh, he is a skilled goal scorer and has really added playmaking layers to his game as well in the past in the past two years. So he, he's great. Like I, like he's going to be an NHL, an NHL player. I have little doubt about that, and I think he's going to be a valuable player for a very long time. I think the the only question is whether that's on a third or a second line. Um, but yeah, he's, he's very, very good. And, and I really don't mean to break your guys' hearts in, in, in suggesting moving him. Uh, it's, it's only a thing of if the Habs, I think like, if you can add a first time draft pick in, in, a, in, a, in a year with a, with a draft class as strong as this one for Joshua, Hawaii, that's something you have to really think long and hard about. And it's something that I would personally pull the trigger on. Uh, but yeah, he, he, he's a great prospect and it's a great story as well. The fact that. He's come this far and he was a first overall pick in the QMJHL draft. And then he fell off and fell to the fifth round as an NHL draft eligible and was picked up by his, his home province team and has since just absolutely skyrocketed. Uh, but yeah, he, he's a great player. I just, I, I don't quite see that, that super high end upside with him. No, I think that like the projection you're, you're kind of describing, I think it fits. I personally, like, I, I agree. I think that what makes Joshua great is, like, because he was that first overall pick, he has skill, right? For sure. Clearly, yeah. it's yeah. not what St. – I think it was St. John that drafted him. It's not what they it thought it was. Yeah. But it's there. And to say that he is that third line – I think he's the third line guy that – you is the first guy you call up into the top six when an injury goes down. That's a guy that every championship team exactly has. For and sure. I, I totally agree. There's so much value in that. The, and I think you're right. I, I don't think Josh was a first line player in any world. Like when you talk about a legit first line player, I think yeah. Habs fans get jaded because we haven't had many legit first line players. David DeHarnay was our fucking number one center yeah. for a couple like, of years. Like, <laughs> like when I'm talking about first line caliber talent, I'm thinking of a of someone that is not 
falling behind the play while playing with a Cole Caulfield, right? Like I'm, yes. I'm a player that, that makes Cole Caulfield better than he already is, which I would argue there isn't, there aren't enough first line players for every team to have. Oh, there aren't. Exactly. Like I, I think for, for 30 NHL teams, like, or 32, you're supposed to have what, like, like 96 uh, first line players. And there aren't, there's nowhere I near. That, I think there might be 70. Right. Like, yeah. like maybe if I'm stretching at 70, but probably closer to 60 or 50. Right. Like, it, and again, first line is, is, is it, it's, it's so, it's, it's so relative again. Right. Cause like, no, like realistically there are 96 first line players because they're playing on the first line, but in terms of first line player on a contending team, I think that is the big differentiating factor because you can have a first line on like a decent enough team that finishes like, I don't know, 22nd in the standings that first line oftentimes won't be able to carry a team to a conference finals unless they get carried by a goalie like Carey Price, for instance. But uh, I think it's just about shifting that mentality of first line caliber shifting the better your team gets. No, absolutely. And the only, the only sort of, I guess, pushback I would have to the Joshua case is that I, I do lend, I don't, you know, I don't know why I do lend a lot to um, how players progress and like the willingness to sort of step up. And what I see from Joshua does make me think that, like you said, um, there is the possibility that he carves out a role as being a guy that can simply play with good players. And the Habs have seen, you know, a very recent good recent example of this in Artari Lekkanen, who I think is a way better player than Joshua will ever be because yeah. he can, he provides things by himself that Joshua can't. But McKinnon and Ranton when, when playing with him, with them, exactly. Right? Like, he, Whereas I think Joshua player. Yeah. Joshua, what Joshua under, I think what makes him valuable is that he, you know, going through minor hockey was the number one guy. So mm-hmm. when he plays with the number one guy, he knows what that dude wants. For sure. Um, so I and, think there and, is. I mean, but Bedard loved playing with him. Like, like yeah. it was raving about one every single interview saying like, like that guy is amazing. Like I love playing with that kid. And, and that, that holds merit. Like, I think when, when a player as talented as Bedard is raving about playing with you and, and going out of his way to praise your game, is telling about about how you play, and I, I do think that that Joshua Hua is a player who elevates uh, those around him. Uh, I think the only question I have is like, how far up the lineup does he go until he's no longer the player elevating the ones around him, but rather like, like he's getting elevated, right? So, I, like, I think the safe bet would be that that third line is that cap, uh, but I think there's there's a world where where he becomes a solid like doesn't doesn't stick out poorly at all in the second line i think that that's entirely possible i think like things would have to go right for that um but at the same time it's also a thing of like have some need to think about about when when they project players of being like oh first line caliber second line caliber think about also what we already have right like we have a guy like kirby doc who is as currently constructed not going to be ideally a first line player on this team moving forward so if you're saying that that Joshua Hua is like a slam dunk top six player, you're saying 
he's the caliber of, of Kirby Doc, right? Because Doc is like likely going to be that like high end second line guy. And if you're talking about a slam dunk top six guy, you're not talking about a borderline top six guy. You're just talking about a solid second liner. So I think you have to kind of calibrate the way that that that, that you approach those thoughts of uh, of being relative to what the Habs already have. Because again, there are only six spots in the top six. You have Caulfield, Suzuki, uh, Slavkovsky, and Doc already occupying four of those. If you draft a forward at fifth overall, you're hoping he, op- he occupies a fifth one of those slots, which means that of all the other prospects in your system, the kidneys, the Meshars, the Bats, the Hoas, the list goes on, the Farrells, the Yolomans, who I love, uh, all these players will be vying for a single remaining top six spot to go along with the Habs' second first round pick and their second round pick and their third round picks this year, right? So there's going to be so many bodies that are going to be fighting for this one single spot, ideally, unless the Habs reach on a defenseman, and then there'd be two, uh, that <laughs> it can be tough to, 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 to confidently project that a player to be the one that wins that spot. And thing is, we want this internal competition. Like this internal competition will make the entire team better. But it also means that certain players are going to be left on the outside looking in. Now, I do think that Joshua Hua will be one of the players on that third line moving forward. I think he will be in contention with all the other names I named. Uh, and I think that multiple of, the, of those players will be moved by, by necessity eventually. Uh, so as to even just recoup some, some value before like, like, look, if, if the Habs have a third line with Joshua Hua, Owen Beck, and like, I don't know, Philip Meshar, and then you have like Sean Farrell and Yessi Alonen on the fourth line that are third line caliber players and want to get more minutes and want to get more opportunities. The best thing the Habs could do in terms of value would likely be to flip those players then, right? Like depending which players cement themselves in the in that top nine, um, and obviously be a luxury to keep them on the fourth line too. And then if injuries arise, you have them there, but you won't be able to, to, to do that with every single prospect that, that, that forges that spot. And I guess that's the, that's, that's the, the good problem to have with, with the depth the Habs have in their system is that there's going to be quite a few players that are going to be NHL caliber that won't have an NHL spot to win because there won't be any available. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that, you know, call it a hot take if you want. I don't think it's really, but in my mind, I almost think it's a certainty that the Habs will possess the best, if not one of the best third line, fourth lines in the NHL in the next couple of years. Due the bottom to, six is going to be gross. It's like, going to be really nasty. Gross. I yeah, think the sure. one thing that is, and like you said, and with this, the kind of topic of conversation this entire episode is who is going to be the face who is going to break the game because i don't even think that the habs lack supporting top six roles i think i agree nick suzuki will be a phenomenal if nick suzuki continues to progress and he is the second or third best player on your team that is perfect it's a luxury like it's Suzuki because look he's still young he's still improving I I think Suzuki's at his best when he handles a bit more of a defensive responsibility than when he's playing with Caulfield 
So if you have, I think like his offense actually improves when he's focused on defense. And I, I agree. I think he's, he's better all around when he has that more like, I guess, two way role than when he's going guns a blazing offense. I just think it suits him better and his strengths better. And if you have that type of like elite two way center as your second liner, ooh, like like that's that's basically like having a David Krejci as your two C, which the Bruins had for like what 10, 15 years. So, oh, so that long. is it's the it's the biggest luxury they could have down the middle is is having that elite level two C, and then if your top line center gets injured or whatever happens, you you can step up and without hesitation take on that role that's a massive luxury at the same time i i don't quite know if nick suzuki's at the level of being able to carry a team as the one c uh to be consistent stanley cup contenders i think you'd, you'd need like a really elite top six supporting cast for that to be the case uh and he just he just wouldn't be the go-to offensive guy in that scenario but yeah if, if the habs can add a center that projects to be better than Suzuki and then you have Suzuki Doc Beck and all the other prospects that we've been mentioning in this this episode like you are set down the middle you have that positional versatility where if a center goes down you get a winger who's been playing center most of their career that can take on that that spot and that's another luxury to have so I I think a really big thing would be for the Habs to 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 get that that one c and i i I do think that kirby doc could still become that i i I do think he has that upside to to be like i I don't even want to necessarily say like 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 the best center on the team but more like that offensive driver uh, down the middle uh to complement your cole caulfield and i don't know matt mishkov on a top line which would be stupid chaotic and not great defensively but they'd score more goals than you could count um, and then you have a Nick Suzuki line with, I don't know, um, Slavkovsky and um, Joshua or Sean Farrell or uh, Philip Machar or whoever else or someone else that, that you draft coming coming up or or Pierre-Luc Dubois. Like if you have a Suzuki Slavkovsky yeah. second line and you have a top line with Mitchkov, Caulfield and Doc, like... Yeah, you have you have separate roles there where one's offensive and one is two-way, but damn, that's dominant, right? Like, and then you have a third line of like Beck, Meshar, and Roy. And you have a fourth line of like Yelonen, Roar, and 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 Farrell. Like <laughs> you're set, right? So absolutely. And I think there's a lot of too- options there. And and even if the Habs missed out on Fantilli and Bedard. They're, they they have possibilities to, to 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 really create a tremendously balanced and dangerous and deep forward core here. Yes, and and like I think what a lot of people get lost in quickly before we wrap it up here, um, they look at you know the McDavid, Drysaitel, Nugent Hopkins approach, where you have players consistently leading the league in scoring. I don't think the Habs are ever going to be a no. team with that are led that way, but not every championship team has to be, if you can score, look at the Bruins this year, for example, oh, God, yes, yeah. they choked, but it that was, Pasternak was there, but the rest was all scoring by committee. Exactly. You just needed that one guy. And to second that the Habs too, if, if, even if they don't have all that offense from the four elite, like monster seasons from forwards, 
it looks to me like they're going to have guys on the back end who are able to contribute. Mm-hmm. And like, are, like Lane Hudson will like Lane Hudson. be an offensive contributor. I think Jack guy, weirdly, if he sticks around, will be a guy that'll score like 12 goals a year just based on yeah. his wrist. He's a ridiculous got, shot. Yeah, you've got Gooley, who I think could tap into some more potential. You've got some guys on the back end that can dribble like potential. Angstrom. Um uh my U's not a player that I like in terms of projection, but I, I do think there's goals. a chance. He has a ridiculous shot, and and if he ends up being like your Chris Weidman role player, where he's your number six defenseman, but he QBs a power play and he scores you quite a few goals, like I think that's entirely possible with with Mayu. Um, I just I, <laughs> some people are like, oh yeah, this is this is the Habs' number one defenseman of the future, and he's big Ugh. and he's great and he shoots hard. That to me is is a difficult projection based off of his uh, his putting it lightly defensive struggles and overall positional awareness struggles um, that I think would burn him consistently in the NHL. But if you shelter him at five and at five on five and, and you give him like a second power play, you could get 10 goals out of him for sure. Absolutely. And to just sort of end to kind of compliment Nick Suzuki before we like absolutely wrap it up. Cause we have gone for so long here. <laughs> um, we you know, we say maybe, maybe Nick Suzuki, Nick Suzuki's never going to be a top 10 player in the NHL, but you know what? Every great, I think he is, I I think Nick Suzuki will be what we're classifying as a first liner, but even the greats needed another elite centerman. Kopitar had Carter, Crosby had Malkin, Mm -hmm. you know, Matthews needs Tavares. All these guys need a great. Having a one-two punch is key. Exactly. Um, So, you know, who cares if Nick Suzuki isn't a top 10 player? He's still a great leader for this team. And I think that sure. if the Habs hit this pick, we are set up for just, I think, over a, like a good decade of success here, eight to 10 years of just great future. So it's really exciting. Um, I honestly wish we could talk about it for another two hours, but I don't <laughs> even know what the hell time it is for you. I it know is, Corey's got is. some stuff to do nearly 3 a.m <laughs> <laughs> that's unbelievable so yes um thank you so much for coming on we really appreciate it um like i said i i think we could go on for ages and ages but we do have to wrap it up eventually so thank you um once again you, you know i'm sure we don't need to keep preaching this but do you want to uh tell them where we where we can find your content yeah, for sure. Um, I centralize everything I do on Twitter. Uh, so you can follow me there at uh, hi underscore Sebastian. Um, it's all lowercase. And uh, yeah, everything I do, I, I, I either do on Twitter or I post about it on Twitter. So that, that is the place to, to find my work. Um, tomorrow, I will, well, tomorrow, uh, right now, tomorrow, uh, it, it'll, it'll be up by the time this gets, gets this, this podcast gets posted. Uh, but I'll be, I'll be posting a video analysis thread on Zach Benson, uh, which brings me tremendous joy to make because Zach Benson brings Beautiful. me joy to scout. And, and I'll be ramping up in terms of, of that draft content. So I'll be making probably another like dozen or so, uh, uh, analysis threads before the draft on draft eligible players. Uh, so definitely look out for those. Um, and yeah. And then, then again, the scouting season's coming to a close. So I'll be, I'll be posting my, my personal rankings, uh, within the next month. Um, 
our Dauber rankings, I'm aiming to get out, like, uh, to, to post around June 10th, uh, which would be two weeks before the draft. Uh, so definitely keep an eye on that uh, for, for Dauber's work as a whole, not just my own. Uh, and But I, I, I always heavily promote that on my own personal account as well. So if you follow me, you can find everything I'm doing. You can find basically everything that, that the Dauber scouting team is doing because I... Uh, I tweet excessively. So uh, that's, that's the place to find me. <laughs> All right. Well, beautiful. Once again, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. You provide such great analysis on just stuff that we can't even begin to go as thorough into. And it's always a good time. So thank you once again for coming on. And hopefully uh, we get to talk to you soon, buddy. For sure. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from.